Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Kesset. I am so excited that you're here. If you're brand new, thanks for uh, choosing to spend a little time in church. My name is Danny. I am one of the pastors and I'm going to be sharing with you this morning's message. We're closing a series right now called Come and See What God Has Done. The entire series is based around and on generosity. And uh, it's just been a huge blessing. As a matter of fact, the series was only supposed to be uh, maybe three, four weeks, and we just kept extending it. I'm actually wondering if every year we as a church should do a series around generosity because there is so much to be grateful for, and it's such a great uh, shift of perspective. We had a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, return on that spiritual investment, and I'm so thankful that, that as a church, we can be grateful. So we're closing it out today with, a, with kind of a tricky preach. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a little edgy for, for me. It's not a topic I like to talk about a lot, but it's a topic very near and dear to me. And I know for people who grew up in church, it's very common and, and something that, that they expect. But for those of us who maybe were wounded by church or you're brand new to church, this topic of generosity uh, is, is, is awkward at best. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to stay very, very close to the word. We're going to stay very close to uh, what Jesus taught because here's my thinking. If you don't like something that's said today, you can take it up with him. I, I'm, I'm simply the messenger. Uh, I'm going to stay real close to the word and that way any, any, any eyes or arrows that are shot at me uh, will we'll hopefully be protected by, uh, by the Holy Spirit and, and what he wants to teach you. Because I do believe there's an incredible benefit when it comes to uh, looking at your own life and how you're doing with your generosity. So we're going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to jump right in, and God is going to bless us all. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to talk about you. Thank you for every person in this room, even if they're just seeking, if they're full of doubt, if they are even full of... Uh, uh, God, just confliction, I know that you can work with all those feelings if they are willing to set down any distractions they brought with them. I ask that in this room for the next half hour or so, we would just learn from you. We would meet you. We would talk about you. We would be con conflicted and, and wrestle with you, God, because you are in those difficult spaces. Thank you that you are so generous to us. Thank you for this heart that beats in my chest and this air that fills my lungs. We are privileged to be called your children and to, to carry this thing within us we all know is life. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Luke. We're going to stay uh, primarily in the book of Luke today. Uh, when you look at Lucan theology, you'll see that when it comes to this concept of generosity, especially the concept of money, uh, all the teaching in Luke primarily comes from Jesus. I think Luke himself had a history of of damage in this area. Maybe he went to a church that didn't manage their, their giving too well, or, or he went to a church that was full of shame, a lot of shame-based preaching, a lot of manipulation from stage to, to make it feel like he had to give. And so anytime he wants to talk about generosity, money or other such areas of generosity, he's, he basically says, and, and Jesus said, and, and Jesus said, and Jesus said. And so I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Luke and and do the same. Let's get an overarching verse first, though. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to that church, chapter 8, verse 9. And this is what he says about Christ. And this is said all throughout Scripture about him, New and Old Testament. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, and then this phrase, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This theme that Jesus shed everything he was, the, everything he had, everything that made, that made him God, he shed and he comes down in human form, fully human, and, and all those things he sets aside so that in his poverty you can be made rich is spread all throughout the gospel, thick as can be from beginning to end. As a matter of fact, when Jesus himself starts his ministry in Luke chapter 4, 18, listen to how he describes how he's going to do it and what he's going to do. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He says right from the beginning, I'm after poor people. I'm after people who, who are generous, people who are, who are, who are low in, in spirit, poverty in spirit, because those people will accept the wealth of who I am. Here's what Jesus is really saying and what we're about to unfold for the rest of this service. Jesus Christ is saying, I'm here to offer all that I am. And I know right away, because he knows his kids, that the only kids who are going to be willing to receive all that he is are the ones that will give up all that they are. There's an exchange that he wants to offer. But he recognizes right away that it is only the people who are impoverished, the people who are broken in spirit. It's not, a, not about bank accounts. It's about the spirit of great need who recognize they can't accomplish these things in their life they want to or that God has built them to accomplish without him. They have great need. They have brokenness and sin. There is a debt upon them. It is only those people who will exchange their debt for my spiritual wealth. And it makes a statement about those of us who, within our spirits, feel like we are enough. We live in a world right now that, that is, it's very important that you know that you by yourself are enough. That, that, that you within yourself, we speak about this and against this quite a bit, have this truth within you that you can discover that's outside anybody else. And the reality is that where you find your enoughness is always and always has been in the one who made you. This is the one who deems you enough. And he accepts all your stuff and he exchanges it for his love, his forgiveness, his grace, his great wealth. And so you are enough in him. I am enough in him. But when I build my life based on reputation, when I build my life based on physical wealth or authority or the size of my church or the size of my influence or the health of my family, when I build my life on anything but Jesus, then those things identify and define me as enough. And then I rest in those things. So then when I go to church or I read scripture or I'm on, listening to something on the radio or there's somebody in my life who says, man, Jesus Christ, he's the one who paid all your debt. And the first thing you think is, I don't have any debt. I paid that off three years ago. Or my kids are doing good. My family's not like that. Or I've never been that way. You are someone who isn't living with an impoverished spirit, a spirit of need. You are someone who is rich within themselves. And Jesus says right from the beginning, I didn't come to talk to those people. I came to talk to people who know they're sick, who know they have need, who know that they need something more than what's just in front of them. And everybody else that you think you have enough, Jesus has a story for you as well. He talks about you, and so I'm going to talk about you because Jesus talks about you. <laughs> 
This idea that Jesus came to proclaim the good news to the poor. We're just going to unpack this right, right with Luke. Luke chapter 4. Then immediately, uh, if, you, uh, if you were to look in the other Gospels, the next thing is this beatitude. It lines up perfectly with Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just seeks it in again. I came to reach the poor. Oh, by the way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the one, they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. This idea of inheriting wealth, this idea of inheriting value. You inherit the kingdom of heaven when you have an impoverished spirit, when you know that you have great need because of your sin and brokenness and that Jesus is the only one who can meet that need. Luke 4, Matthew, back to Luke 6. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus is just sprinkling this in. It seems like every sermon he ends with a quick money jab. Every time. It's not me, people. Okay, this talk, by the way, this is what's so funny. This talk I thought would go a lot better a few weeks ago. I didn't want to end the series because I didn't want people to think I had built an eight-week generosity series on today. But what's so funny is I knew, I knew it would fit the best in terms of how it would impact the church at the end. But I felt like that might be a little bit, uh, I don't want to, I just want God to provide. But then the snow came and killed that weekend. And then the, the, the elements that I had planned for this service couldn't be scheduled to the end. And I was like, no, that's on you, Jesus. That's not my fault. Jesus continues to sink this kind of stuff in. Woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation. You have received your comfort. You have received your feeling of peace. You have already met all the needs you thought you had. And woe to you for that because I am the great need meter. And you're blinding and numbing the needs in your life with the stuff in your account or the authority or the reputation or how many likes or how many friends or how many followers you have. And you think that accounts for how important you are when really the most important thing about you should be Jesus who forgave you. <laughs> That's not even in the notes. That came from my preaching glasses. That's where that came from right there. At this point, Jesus, uh, he set everybody up, right? He shared all these different chapters. And then he goes into four low, right? It's like a spiritual four low. He shares a parable. Now, I'm not saying this parable is about anybody in the room. I'm just saying God doesn't waste verses. And so there's people in the room, and you need this parable in your life. And so I, I pour this over you respectfully, respectfully. I pour this over you for the good of who you are. The title of the parable is The Rich Fool. I didn't say it. That's what Jesus said it. You know who you are because right now you're like, hmm, that's offensive. Good. This is for you. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll get to the poor fools here in just a minute. So Luke 12, 16 through 21, Jesus is speaking. He says, a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, this is this, this, is this plentiful soul uh, problem, this plentiful soul epidemic that people have who have much. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then there's a quiet space. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The crowd is silent like this one is here. And Jesus leans forward and says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
It's four low stuff right there. It's all kinds of traction on the human soul. Jesus says one day, every person in this room will receive that calling from God, and he will say, today your soul is required of you. And I'm here to tell you right now, I sure hope in my life that I have given away everything I possibly can, and that I, my soul, my gifts, my talents, my, my worldly treasure is all offered up for the good of him who calls me because I want him to say, Danny, you got nothing left. You got to come live with me. I'm sick of supporting you. Right? I want to move back in with dad. That's my whole end game. <laughs> my whole end game is I want to move home. And, and, he's, and if I'm distracted by this life and this, this, this influence or this wealth that I've built, I'm afraid that one day he'll ask, I wonder what's going to happen, Danny, with all that wealth, with all that influence, with all those talents I gave you. I don't want him to say that. I don't want him to say, you got nothing left. You're done. I don't want to be that fool. And I don't want you to be that fool. The next parable, it's called the parable of the dishonest manager. And you can read the whole thing. I won't cover it. But there's a guy who gets caught. And he realizes the true power of money when he gets caught because he's about to be kicked out on the streets. So he goes to all these people who owe the man who caught him money. And he forgives them portions of their debt. And the illustration is one that money is to be used to build relationships and to build influence because community is really what protects and cares for you because medical bills or, or trauma or some other thing, what's the story? Everybody you've ever met is one paycheck or one crisis away from total and complete disaster. Everybody. Everyone you've ever met is one paycheck or one crisis away from total and complete disaster. And people who remember that have relationships that they leverage with the beautiful thing that, that money is. Money is not evil. Money, people misuse that verse that money is the root of all evil. That's not even what the verse says. It says money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because you can use it to do bad things. But that also means every time you read scripture and it says this can be done, it always implies that something else can be done as well. That you can use it to do good things. That you can use the generosity of your time to do bad things. But you can use the generosity of your time to do good things. You can use the generosity of your influence to do bad things. But of course you can use the generosity of your influence to do good things. He says at the end, once he shares this story, that you need to use the resources God has given you to do good things. For he says, Luke 16, 13, in the parable of the dishonest manager, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he leans forward and says, you cannot serve God and money. He says, you have to choose. How are you going to spend your years? How are you going to spend them? I've shared this many times. I was sitting with a man who, whose grandson died, and, and he, he, I asked him, how did you walk him through that when he asked you, why do I have to die, Grandpa? And this man was a long-term pastor, and he shared with his grandson what I'll share with you. He said, grandson, you will get every minute and every second of every day that God has ordained you to have and not one more. There is no one who can take your life from you until God sees it as so. And so I tell you the same. You will get every minute and every second of every day, and so will I. The question is, how will you spend it? How will you use the years you have left? You all have a date on your life. God knows it. And you have only so much time between now and then, and how you spend it will determine so much 
about your spirit and your connection with God and who he is. It is predetermined that you decide and fall into this person God has called you to be. And the only way to do that is to rely on him. The only way to do that is to, through poverty of spirit, not wealth of Danny's management of himself, proclaim God as Lord and I'm his servant. I'm his follower. I'm his child. These are the words we use in Christianity because they're words that proclaim he's in charge and I am not. And so everything I'm given is from him. And so everything I given should be used for him. Now he shares these little principles after sharing all these previous little punches and the chapters just go one after the other, right? So, so we started off uh, with uh, Luke chapter 4. Then we went to Luke chapter 6. Then we went to Luke chapter 12. Then just now the parable of the manager is Luke chapter 16. And then all of a sudden you suddenly realize if you study scripture at all that Jesus is building these things and setting you up for a picture that is undeniable of how he works and how he wants you to see the generosity in your life. It's a beautiful picture and he does it with two contrasting stories. The first one of which is in Luke chapter 18. It's called Jesus and the good rich man. He's a quality guy. He he goes to church every Sunday. He gives. He supports. He has incredible wealth. And so he finds his way to Jesus. Maybe it even costs him something, but he doesn't care. So he travels. He goes to where Jesus is, and he sits with Jesus. And this is what he said, Luke 18, verse 18. This man was a ruler, a man of influence, and he asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man almost interrupts him. It's almost like Jesus couldn't even finish. Because the man says, I have kept all of these since I was a child from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, and I like to think Jesus just doesn't say things right away. Jesus is like one of those wise grandfathers that waits just a minute for you to run out of breath, feel your own heartbeat in your chest, waiting for him to respond. You ever have some of those guys in your life? And Jesus says, but one thing you still lack. He says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and I want you to come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, I want to be clear about something. Jesus isn't saying that every Christian that follows him has to sell their house and sell all their stuff in order to be a Christian. He's saying that this specific man in this specific situation has a problem. And this man's problem is that he relies a lot on himself. As a matter of fact, all the commandments that Jesus listed are really difficult commandments to do. It's really hard to always honor your, your mother. It's really hard to not commit adultery with your eyes. By this point, Jesus has said it. It's hard to not steal just a little bit now and then. And it's really, really hard not to gossip or, or over-exaggerate, bearing a little bit of false witness. These are things that people wrestle with, that if a person of poverty of spirit would have heard it, they would have been like, oh, Jesus, I can't do that stuff. I don't, what do I do? And Jesus would have had a different task for them. But he says, ha, I did all those things. I've checked them off the list. And Jesus says, ah, You checked them off the list, but here's the problem. You think you hold the pen to the list. 
You believe you're the one managing your life because you have so much resource behind you. And so Jesus challenges him with the one thing he cannot do, which is rely fully on God. The one thing that's between him and a relationship with Jesus. Be clear, this man was getting an offer to follow Jesus, to be part of the story. Who knows if he would have done it, we could have had a whole other book of the Bible. We don't even know his name though. We just know he was the rich, good man who chose to rely on his own riches instead of Jesus. Jesus says at the end of it, because he knows everybody's looking. Seeing that the man had become sad, Jesus says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? The idea is who can be saved? It's impossible. What you're saying is impossible. A camel can't go through a needle. But Jesus responds, But what is impossible with God, with men, is possible with God. He says, let's be real clear, there's no way you're getting to heaven unless you're going through me. And a man who's wealthy doesn't need me because people who need me need to exchange what they have for me. And the only people generally that do that are people who have nothing. This is a really important important thing for you to absorb into your life. If you've ever traveled overseas, if you've ever done anything outside this town, you may realize that not everybody has the wealth we have. I lived in another country for a year. The first thing I noticed when we got back were how clean our streets were, how wide they were, how bright our lights were at night. There was so much I just, I was just so tweaked because I'd grown up in this in this wealth and in this beauty and it just becomes part of what I expect that Jesus says if you don't realize that you need me you will not receive me and you certainly won't give me all you have it's impossible and so they say then what do we do and he says the only things that you can do that the only time you can do impossible things is with God and then the very next chapter we get to meet the opposite of this good rich man instead we get to meet a really bad rich man. This man's name is Zacchaeus. It says that Jesus entered a town. This town was Jericho, one of the wealthiest towns in the entire region. Huge population. It says he entered Jericho, Luke 19, verse 1, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You know the song. He was a wee little man. But he did not have wee little pocketbooks. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and was rich remember the word chief tax collectors because tax collectors are filthy rich Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature (laughs) some of you relate to that more than others so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, I, I loved, I, I wish there was more detail to the story, but it says he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. If I was Zacchaeus, I'd be like, it'd be like that time when you get called out in a crowd and you're just like, oh, this isn't, I was just picking some sycamore nuts. I wasn't up here to, I'm just hungry for sycamore. Okay, I'll come down. He comes down and he leads Jesus to his beautiful house. He came down and received him joyfully. And when the people saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
See, Jesus comes into town, and he sees a wealthy man. And I want to give some clarity on this, because I did some research. Because it's significant to me that the rich earlier man was never named, but Zacchaeus was. And part of that is because of what you're about to see happens in Zacchaeus' heart. The other part is to realize that Zacchaeus is a fairly well-known figure at this time. And come to find out, if you do a little research on him, he was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. Zacchaeus was a straight-up mobster. That's who he was. Like, there's nobody in Jericho calling Zacchaeus short. Nobody. Uh, this man ripped people off. He owned property. He, he ran the entire town. He extorted everyone because he personally had the tax franchise there and paid it directly to the Romans. And anything he could get over the base rate, he got to keep. So his wealth, compared to the earlier man's wealth, was vastly different. For his was massive. It says that this man spent the night talking with Jesus, having a meal, breaking bread, relating, connecting, wrestling, being convicted, all the things I prayed over this crowd at the beginning of the service. See, you think I pray those things so that, so that I like set a stage, but the reality is I don't think Jesus sat in the house and was just quiet and smiled a lot. I think he was like, bro, let's talk about what you, let's talk about you. And, and Zacchaeus apparently was forthright. This, this is me. This is what happened to me. It's part of my story. This is the stuff I deal with. This is what I make. This is what I give. This is what I don't give. And Jesus talked to him and shared with him and shared with him about his poverty inside and shared with him about what it means to become under the rule of Jesus Christ. And he offers to exchange all of the brokenness in Zacchaeus' life for the cleansing love and forgiveness of his own. And Zacchaeus busts out of that house in the morning a very different man. It says... Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood, so he must have came out and made an announcement, and he stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, which by the way, he had defrauded everyone. So he basically gave away half his money to the poor, and the other half he gave away four times to people that he uh, defrauded. And Jesus said to him, because of this heart change, today has salvation come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And here's the beautiful part. Zacchaeus is named and he is forever a description and a proclamation of how Jesus works. He moves into your life and he removes the obstacle. For the rich young ruler, it was wealth. For Zacchaeus, it was wealth. One person obeyed all the commandments. The other one was an outright thief. Jesus offers both the same thing. Follow me, and I will take everything in your life that keeps you from being who you're supposed to be, and I will exchange it for my presence. The rich young ruler looks at all his stuff, looks at Jesus, and says, I'll stick with me. And Jesus says, it's impossible to go to heaven without me. It's impossible when you're wealthy. And then the very next chapter, he meets Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus has more than anyone without any of the, the, the foundational tools. He doesn't obey any of the commandments. And he dines with Jesus, and he's like, yeah, I want that. And it shows the impossibility, not of Zacchaeus' generosity or the rich young ruler, but of Jesus. For he offers it to both. And it doesn't take coming to church. It doesn't take giving. It doesn't take supporting. It doesn't take writing a check. It takes a change of heart from the inside out, from the top of your body to the bottom, to where you see the world upside down and different. 
And when that happens, you suddenly don't care about whether it's good or bad. You just care about him ruling your life. It's not about being good or bad. It's about Jesus and whether or not you, and I'm talking to you specifically, you know who you are. It's about you and whether or not you are willing to accept his message of incredible grace and generosity. Because, bro, you got a timeline on your life, whoever you are, and it's coming. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, but you're not going to be able to make it all the way there without Jesus Christ. It's just not going to happen. There is a life beyond this one. You know it. You can feel it. It's around you. And so I'm telling you off script right now, whoever you are, you best give up the pride in your life that's keeping you stuck thinking you've got it all together because you don't and you'll die knowing it. And that was incredibly offensive. And I'm just going to leave it there. You'll die knowing it. We'll all die knowing it if we don't accept Jesus for who he is. I want to notice something else for all you church folk real quick. And I don't mean to do this to you, but I'm going to anyways. This has nothing to do with tithing. As a matter of fact, most of us don't even tithe the right way anyways. If you were to actually add up all the Old Testament tithes, add them up and including the festival tithes and the mandatory tithes, it comes to 23.4% of your income. How's that out? How's that working out for you? You got that in your budget? So we talk about tithing when really what we need to be talking about is generosity. We are called to give as a reflection of what we've been given. And so give in such a way that there are things we would have to miss out on because of our giving. We are supposed to be reminding ourselves that it hurts and that it's costly. For in this way, we are most like Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And listen to this. If you have a Bible, underline it, but emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. According to God's word, and according to the book of Luke, and according to Jesus, it appears without a doubt that generosity is a sign of a regenerate soul, which means there has never been a saved or Christian Scrooge. You can be stingy and still tithe. You can obey all the commandments you want. But if you are not generous, if you are not giving, skipping out on things that bring, bring pleasure to you to help other people with your time, with your gifts, with your resources then you are not a generous person. Regenerated people are generous 100% of the time. This thought has been with me for years, and I've talked about it a lot at Kesed. I feel like at the end of my life, and I'll put it up there, I believe I will think about not what I have acquired, but about what I have been given and in turn given away. I believe that since we started this church, we would preach and talk about how one day whatever God blesses us with, we're going to give it away to, our, to the next generation. I don't know if you realize, but the future leaders of Kesa Church are up in children's ministry right now. That's where they are. The future preachers of Kesa Church, the future elders of Kesa Church, the future ministry leaders of Kesa Church, they're all right up there right now. Every one of them. If not here, they're somewhere else, and God is going to orchestrate everything about their lives to be ready for these resources, and we're going to give it to them, and they're going to give it to the next generation, and so on, just like the gospel has been passed down and poured out for, by people who realized it was going to cost them much, but they were going to 
instead exchange everything for Jesus who forgives and loves and fills so that that at the end of their life they will not be measured by anything more than Jesus' love for them. And because of that, they will be found enough. Two years ago to the day, this little church was given a building by a, another small group of people, another little church, to the, almost to the day we were given our uptown campus. When we were given that building, it blew our minds that God would be so generous to us, and so we wanted to capture what that building looked like before, we, we, uh, as it was, as it was given to us. And so we made this little video. I want you to watch this video and then I'm going to bring up the elder board of that church that made the decision along with their congregation to give it to us. And we're going to learn from them just what it takes to have a mind-blowing, generous spirit. Please watch and remember. And then join me as we talk with these very faithful men. privilege of welcoming the past elders of First Baptist Church, Stan Livingston, Greg Butts, and Dave Wetmore. So uh, 132 years ago, <laughs> in 1887, two years before Washington was a state, uh, a group of people got together and built a small church in Vancouver. And these people uh, started that church with very few funds very little resources, but a whole lot of prayer. There's two things that remain from that church. The bell that sits in our tower in the building downtown. And this communion chalice. This communion chalice has been passed from church family to church family throughout the years. Until eventually in 1955, that family built a brick church downtown. The one that you've all seen now. That we are in the process of remodeling. Fast forward to, uh, to our time together. Kesed was planted. We started. We grew. And we waited. We didn't know what to do or where to go. We just wanted to make sure we were good stewards of what God had for us and that we were willing to, to be and do what he called us to do. I was always looking for churches to hold a baptism in because we've been in schools most of our church life and churches don't really like pools that much. 
And so I've always had to rent a building for baptism. And I had heard uh, through a man who played worship with us about this beautiful church downtown that had a baptismal. And so we asked if we could do a service there. We did it. And at the end of the service, this gentleman, Stan, came forward and said, can I talk to you? And he took me into the back room and he asked me if I was willing, uh, if our church would be willing to, to investigate looking at uh, receiving their building. I, uh, I, I, I remember just thinking it was kind of a joke and he wasn't being serious, but he looks pretty genuine. So I was like, I don't, this doesn't look like a man who messes around much. And so uh, I called Tom and I told Tom and they set a date for us as, to meet as an elder, an elder board. And then on the way to the meeting, I was driving to the meeting, Stan texted me and said, Danny, I'd like to uninvite you from our meeting because I want to see the men behind you, not just the man on stage, something along that line. And I remember thinking, no problem. We have a great board here. And so I sent Tom. And uh, maybe you can catch up what's happened from that meeting through our, our time there. Sure. The, uh, the interrogation went well. <laughs> <clears throat> no, no, it was, it was good. But, uh, you know, they wanted to know everything about our church, about Danny. And uh, as some of you may know, uh, I've known Danny since he was a baby. So I held him in my arms as a baby. So there's a lot to oh. tell. That, um, I don't know why that is important to you to always share. No, it's important. <laughs> in fact, let me go back to when Danny was <laughs> no. five. No, I don't. No, I, I just, you want to do that? No. Okay. All right. No. No. Uh, it, was, it was a fantastic meeting. Our elders were there, and, of course, uh, the three of them were there. And uh, we walked out as friends. And uh, it was very clear that God's hand was in this the entire time. After that meeting, we had several other meetings. Uh, they vetted us very well. They, they got our financials, they got our attendance, they got everything about us. I mean, they knew us very, very well. And um, so those meetings were, were very good. And I would just, I would say that they were very peaceful mm. and things were easy. They were easy for us because they were giving us a 30,000 square foot church. I'm sure it was much harder for them, but it was a very easy, peaceful process. And there was maybe one little bump on the road that we had. It worked itself out days later. And it was just, it was just a, a, a really healthy way to merge two churches. So uh, thank you for that, you guys. Uh, and Danny, the other thing I would say is, is when we did that, um, my wife and I, Lisa, we were able to be the campus pastors there for a year. We kept their services going every Sunday morning. And I got to tell you, in all my years of ministry, that's probably the, the best year of ministry that, mm -hmm. that we had because these people, not only these three gentlemen here, but the entire church body down there, we're just great people, and many of them are in the service today, so um, it, was, it was a good experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So from there, uh, Stan, we'll, we'll kind of pass it to you. Uh, this was a very generous thing that you guys did, and uh, we, we merged the, the churches. We kind of adopted, I think is the word you guys asked us to use, uh, First Baptist, and it was, it was uh, unanimous, that vote. And uh, we've been journeying together over the last two years. And I guess I, I just wanted to put together, for me, talking about generosity, I couldn't think of three better faces to share what generosity looked like. Because these people combined, I don't know how much church years you have in that church. Because, Greg, how many years? Uh, 39. Okay. Dave? Half of that. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, so you're talking years, years, you know, 70-ish years of ministry that they've had there in that church, uh, and, and I, just, I just thought they would be a great example of generosity for us, um, and I have something really special planned for the end of this between you guys and, uh, and our church. So, Stan, why don't you share with us what, where you're coming from? Well, I think it's probably useful to um, reveal just a very brief history. In 2003, 
Um, we, um, uh, it was a very tough year. Uh, through a variety of things, uh, the, the um, uh, attendance had dwindled. Uh, we were having financial problems. I remember the finance committee was meeting and trying to decide, do we pay the water bill or do we pay the gas bill? <laughs> and um, uh, we came very close to actually closing the church at that time. And in our constitution, if we closed the church, we had to actually give the building to an uh, organization called CB Northwest. And um, they were an organiza organization of men that, that help churches uh, survive and thrive. And um, we um, and, uh, took the initiative to talk to a Dr. Carl Laney, who was uh, a professor, and I think is a dean of, of religion at, or instruction at, at uh, Western Seminary. And he introduced us to Pastor Jack Grimm, uh, who is sort of in between assignments. And uh, Jack uh, uh, agreed to spend a year evaluating us at a church. And at the end of that year, he would make a decision. His decision would be final, uh, that the church would close or that he would become the pastor. Well, by the grace of God, he became the pastor. And we had uh, 10 great years with Jack. But we tried again for 10 years a variety of things uh, to uh, boost our membership. Uh, we tried partnering with Open House Ministries, with YWCA. We had Magenta Theater had our building for a while. We, Journey Theater, the children's uh, uh, Christian um, uh, group. Uh, we hosted... Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we even started a Friday night alternative service with a gentleman by the name of Matthew Morris, Pillars of Grace, all for the purpose. Uh, we actually, in addition to that, we did we did prayer walking. We went out and knocked on doors. Okay, I mean, we really put a lot of effort in to try to build the the um, uh, membership up, and uh, it didn't work. So in 2014, I was a treasurer, had been a treasurer for many years. I basically gave a report to the elders and I said, we're, a, we're on a trajectory of failure. We are going to close uh, if we don't do something. And we did not want to be forced to be closed because if we were forced into it, we would have been required to give the building to CB Northwest. We didn't want to do that. So we actually um, started praying every Wednesday night. Uh, uh, a number of uh, the elders and a number of other people would gather at the church on Wednesday night, and we would pray for an hour to two hours, and we asked God to give us some direction. Uh, we entertained the idea of approaching other churches. Um, we actually had one church who was downtown who actually pestered us to death about the building, but there was a big disconnect, which was not, not important. And um, and then uh, Jim Coombs, you saw his picture in the video here, um, uh, who was our praise director, and that alone is a miracle, <laughs> another story. Um, but he said that uh, there's this church called Kessa Church that met at Clark College, and that they were without a building, and they were looking for a building, but more immediately they needed a place to have a baptismal service that occurred in November of uh, 2016. And uh, I remember that night, uh, very well. It, <clears throat> it was just an amazing night, an absolutely fantastic night. And that's when Danny and I got together, and um, uh, it was a very short meeting, probably less than five minutes, and all I did is said, Danny, would you guys be interested in taking over this building? Uh, the rest basically is history. I think the thing that, uh, looking back on this, um, uh, I believe uh, God's hand was in this. 
I think in 2003, we could have easily have closed, uh, but God had another plan for that building. He wanted to have a church in that building on that corner, <clears throat> and uh, I believe he sustained that church for 14 years waiting for Kesed. Uh, Dave, uh, we're talking about generosity and we're talking about the process you guys went through. And I know that, that all three of you have shared this, but I'd love to hear from you and Greg. But you, it was painful. It was not just an easy thing to give this way. I want to share several thoughts and feelings I had. First, we were trying to, th or I was trying to think, how do you best further the growth of the God's kingdom here in, in Vancouver and Clark County? And second would be like, it was a matter of we're giving an inheritance away like to the next generations but I found out that it was easier to give away something that's not yours it was God so that made it easier to give away and and I was always a strong advocate of the merger between the two church bodies and I've never regretted or second-guessed that decision but it still hurt to give it away. Hey, having spent almost 40 years in the church, it was uh, very difficult for my wife and myself. <clears throat> Our daughters were raised in the church. They were baptized there. We had many good friends. The gospel was always preached there. It was a place that was very sound doctrinally. And when I pray, I have a tendency to know ahead of time what I want God to do rather than wait for God, you know. <laughs> and I was praying for the, the building to be full of good people, for young people, for babies, and I just want God to bless that, and I had no clue how he was going to answer that prayer. Uh, we started this process before Kesset even came along, and yet God in his wisdom knew exactly what he was doing, and isn't it nice that the decisions we think are right aren't always right. That God is always right. And so, in, you know, looking back, that was absolutely the best thing our church body could have done. And the agreement within the body was totally in agreement. Everyone loved the idea. Nobody was opposed to it. And all glory goes to God. Yeah, amen. amen. Yeah, can we give them a hand? Yeah. <laughs> you guys are very special your church congregation is here as well so that was for you uh if you were with first baptist and and greg i know i didn't want to do this part but you said you wouldn't share if i didn't let you close the time um so please go ahead I'd like to make the comment that, you know, we were praying for a full church. We were praying that God's will be done. And Tom and Danny and everyone else from Kesset were always thanking First Baptist for this wonderful gift. And I just want to let you know that you were an answer to our prayer as much as we were to your prayer. And, you know, like I said before, you know, this is God's church doesn't belong to Dan or Tom or to us 
or anybody. This is God's yeah. church, period. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 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 So here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, last week, I handed out consideration cards because, as we know, uh, our project downtown, the first phase is, is beginning to wrap up, and we still have a lot to do to get in there and also a lot to do for second phase, and uh, we can need the continued support. And so the consideration card, uh, I'm going to have those passed out right now. They're right there. And basically, they, they are asking for you guys to pray about uh, a consistent monthly gift, 6, 12, 18 months, a single one-time gift, the gift of an asset, or maybe you'd like to help with purchasing a chair. My wife and I, for instance, uh, purchased a chair for every person in our family, so we need 650 of those things. Uh, right around there. Yeah, right around there. Um, and uh, also, of course, prayer. So what we thought we would do, based on a verse in Revelation, is we thought we would have the elders of First Baptist serve you, the congregation of Kesed Communion. And we're basing it off this verse and the example they've set today. Revelations 4 4, 10 through 11 says, Around the throne, the throne of God, were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. And listen to these words. If they don't describe these men, I don't know who does. They cast their own crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It is only because of our Lord's generosity toward us that we can proclaim he is worthy of it all. And so today, as the Holy Spirit fills you up with what it is you're supposed to participate in this generation's passing on of the next the chalice and the bell and the, the building all being passed on, would you please bring forward your card, set it at the communion table within the basket, and then receive the bread and the juice, the juice representing the blood of Christ, the bread representing his body. Exchange those things, go back to your seat, and during that worship time, when you're ready, partake in your seats of the juice and of the bread, participating as a whole in the gift that God has already given us of eternal life and forgiveness for our sins. I am honored to have these guys and their wives present this to you. And actually, I have Stan, who's going to lead you in the communion verse and then pray before you come up with your cards, take the communion and go back to your seats and then take during the special. Isn't that unbelievable? We are pleased, we are blessed, and we appreciate you guys one more time. Thank you. celebrate uh, the Lord's death and resurrection uh, on occasion, but it's something that I would urge you all to at least remember it on a daily basis. My wife and I read the Bible every night, and we pray every night, and at the end of every prayer, <clears throat> we acknowledge what Christ did for us on the cross. It's, uh, it brings you closer to him. But in 1 Corinthians 11, during the Last Supper, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night, when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us bow our head in prayer. And as we um, sit here with our eyes closed, I want you to picture in your mind Christ on the cross. Nails in his hand and his feet crown on his head, still bleeding from the torture that he was subject to. And think about what he did on the cross. Heavenly Father, we do think about that and we realize the pain and suffering that your son went through so that we would have eternal life. It brings us to tears. There's no way we can possibly come up with any words that would be suitable to thank you. In the last few moments of his life on earth as the man-god, he said, Eli, Eli, lemasabichthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a horrible <coughs> moment that must have been for him. And on a few moments later, he said, it is finished. And he raised, was raised to your right hand and Heavenly Father, we think about that and how incredibly fortunate we are to be a member of your household. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that every single day that we walk this earth, that what we do and that what we say would bring honor and praise to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When you're ready, please come down. We have tables on the side as well as in the middle. Drop off your commitment card. Participate in the story that God is unfolding. Receive the bread and the juice. Take it back to your seat. And anytime during the song you feel led, please partake in communion. Let's praise him. Let's worship him. Let's be generous as we bless the one who blesses us all. Amen. All the saints and angels bow be